Happy New Year! Welcome to the Flick Lab. How have you <laughs> celebrated New Year, Henrik? Because we're <clears throat> we're it's the right movie for this situation. You know, we are time traveling now. So tell me how you celebrated your Happy New Year. I myself went to a little time travel myself and tried to find my lost liver somewhere. It's all eaten by Lapin Gulda. <laughs> yeah, very rotten and completely lost. Should I call an ambulance or should I enter the laboratory? I guess it's at this point it's safer just to enter the laboratory. Okay, let me look for my latex gloves. Let's get this interesting. <laughs> So I'm Karri, and this time we are going to look at Terminator 2. Wow, what a way to start the new year. Huh. So we're looking to kind of update the format slightly, at least for us. You could be expecting a little less jumping, hopping, going back and forth in the amount of time that we spend in the laboratory. Maybe the episodes will be a little bit more equal from this day on. We will see. We will see how this whole structuring that we have built for the laboratory works. Yeah, this is something that we ourselves haven't yet tried out, so there may be some growing pains. Yeah. With the podcast and with this new style we are trying out, so try to be patient. Yeah. I am indeed Kari, and if you haven't listened to this podcast before, I did study media, so of course I am the right choice for this podcast. My colleague Henrik is studying now, and he's going to be Master of Arts. So, excellent choice. It was either that or Master of Universe, and that title was already taken, unfortunately. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just a few more studies under your belt, and who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never too many. Never too many. Yeah. Well, today's movie is a beast. Let me just gather my brain cells together. This is, this is a, a bit of an undertaking, not least because this is a pretty important movie for me. This could be said to be my favorite, if there is such a thing, my favorite, well, let's say favorite action movie, to be kind of adult here, for God's sakes. And I have done with my family members and my friends this uh, homemade Terminator 2X movie, which we will kind of talk about, of course, here as well, because it's part of something that belongs to me, belongs to my relationship with this movie. But today's role, my experience with the film, I can only remember as far back as around, let's say, 1997, 1998. I was recording this movie from a Finnish TV channel, Nelonen, which was a big uh, new thing back then. I don't remember why I recorded it, but I have a very faint memory that I had seen this movie even before this airing, or perhaps only parts of it. And I was interested about the aspect that Cameron has said that the fact that Terminator can do whatever he pleases in his environment. Yeah, so this is kind of carrying on from my theme in White Hunter and Black Heart as well, in the sense that there also I was fascinated by Clint's character who did what he wanted during a film shoot. 
And I was also really lucky to catch this movie on the big screen in August 2003, when Finkino re-released it for just for a couple of playbacks in Helsinki in the legendary Bristol Theatre, which sadly was discontinued in 2010. It was okay. I mean, it was an old, obviously old cinema, very old style cinema. It was, um, mm, yeah, <laughs> it's culture history, but it wasn't my favorite cinema of all time or such. But yeah, it was great, and they were able to show the 70 millimeter film and the aspect ratio. That is an experience in itself. Uh, the level of clarity and details that you can see in the image when you go to the theater, it makes you respect the movie in a whole different way when you look at it at home in, say, the year 1999 and you're having the pan scan airing. What's your experience with T2? Uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. What movie are we talking about? Oh, it's Terminator 2, was it? Oh yeah, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, I came in contact with the movie in my childhood also. I originally got Terminator 2 also from some of the TV airings. If I remember correctly, most likely was once again the famous Finnish broadcasting station Yle. And I guess it was one of Yle's airings where I originally saw Terminator being, of course, hyped as fuck for the movie yeah. since it, it has Arnold Schwarzenegger and robots punching each other. So already, without seeing the movie, I knew that this is going to be just around my alley. Yeah, the movie that fits for many people. Perhaps not as as many as something like Lion King, but Terminators. Yes, it works for the kids as well. It does. Although I have to say that it was kind of a painful process to revisit the film. Now for this podcast, and actually look at it with the critical eye we have to have here on Flick Lab and seeing all the little details and things that just do not work out in this film. So thank you, you. Okay, this is going to be a sacrilegious episode. Yeah, you fuck, you ruined Terminator 2 for me. Me? <laughs> Thanks, Punch. <laughs> what did I do? If you pay too much attention to all the logical issues with time traveling, then that's like an endless loophole of loopholes. So I, I didn't even go there. I know that there are all these problems. I didn't even bother. Yeah. Well, lucky for you, James Cameron sure as fuck did. So, <laughs> you, you really can't actually try to make a podcast or critical analysis on Terminator 2 and not touch the subject of the time travel. Yeah, okay. It's good that you are uh, touching this subject and ruining the movie for us tonight. <laughs> I was looking at all the other directions this time. Well, anyway, <laughs> today's movie... What's the history of this movie? There is a several year gap between the first Terminator, Terminator and Terminator 2, since they wanted to wait for the computer animation to develop in order to do the Terminator 2 as intended. I think that's more of a marketing, hyping talk, to say it politely. But there was definitely that too. But uh, in 1989, The Abyss was released, this Cameron's Underwater adventure which provided the proof of concept for the character of T-1000. But perhaps the bigger issue was an intellectual property dispute between Hemdale Film Corporation and Carolco Pictures. 
and this was finally resolved in 1990 when Caracol bought the rights to Terminator and Unfortunately, Carolco dissolved into bankruptcy in November 95, and then uh, Mario Casar, the owner, the Lebanese film producer, then co-founded C2 Pictures, which caused a lot of confusion in me when it was in the starting titles of T3. Okay, is this the same company? Apparently it kind of isn't. And then that fell into dormancy, and then became Halcyon or Halcyon Company, not sure how to pronounce that? and which also filed for bankruptcy in 2009. Uh, so, pff, okay. Interesting company. It was always there to support and produce Terminators, and now it's been like three incarnations and it's again gone. <laughs> of course, there's the history of the first Terminator itself. Uh, great movie. Uh, much rougher. Much rougher. There's the same cinematographer, same people, many same people, but Terminator 1 was darker, and it was rougher around the edges, of course, because of its time, but also because of the constraints of the budget. But these are totally different movies. Yeah, the main thing between Terminator and Terminator 2 is that during that time that it, it took for James Cameron to actually come around and finally make Terminator 2, somewhere around that time, James Cameron finally realized that you can actually use money to make your movies. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, T Terminator, the first one is something like a $6 million feature, uh, while as Terminator 2 is $102 million, or somewhere around that ballpark. So you can just see that this is the point where Cameron finally realized how to put money into filmmaking. Yeah. And it was uh, the most expensive movie of its time, sort of. Actually, it wasn't, because there was Cleopatra. A movie from the 60s was more expensive when adjusted to inflation than Terminator 2. So there's that. But it was widely reported as the most expensive movie ever made. But because we're the Flick Lab, we're going to ruin this aspect as well. It wasn't. So carrying on. Terminator 6. This is also why we're covering Terminator 2 now. Because it's not only one of my favorite movies of all time. Hopefully yours too. I don't know. Maybe I ruined it forever for you. Now no can do. But Terminator 6 is coming shortly. Well, this year. So, a timely episode. Synopsis of Terminator 2. Is it you or me? Or who is going to handle this beast? Maybe I should invite my mom. Go ahead. You know, I have noticed that we get more listeners every time we have a guest on this podcast. So, I was trying to coax her to join. Äiti, tuletko kertomaan, mitä Terminator 2. tapahtuu? Mä sanoin. Mm -hmm. She's already writing you out of her will. <laughs> at, at this moment, you know, I know that silence. <laughs> but yeah, basically what Terminator 2 is all about. It's a take on the subject why Whenever crazy hobo Steve comes to bother you on a public park yelling how the end is nigh and it's apocalypse and the judgment day is coming, you should clearly listen to him. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> and Terminator 2 is the story of one Terminator appearing in 1995, or is it 6, or is it 7, who knows. And... Then there is another Terminator who comes to 1995, 1996, 1997, somewhere in that ballpark. And one of them is hunting for John Connor, and one of them is protecting John Connor. 
and the one that protects him more, the one that keeps him alive, happens to be the winner of this movie. Spoilers. Yeah, if, if you haven't seen Terminator 2 already, there is just something wrong with you. Yeah. I would say that everyone knows what happens in Terminator 2. I have to say, say that, the, like, almost all of the people that were acting in my Terminator 2X, they had never seen Terminator 2. So I had to explain them all of them about the Judgment Day and then how this thing works. And, <laughs> but we got it rolling. That may also kind of explain how, the, how you <laughs> managed to get your actors. Yeah, yeah. Un is this some kind of an under the rock joke? No, it, it's more of a just a quip on how daunting task it could have been to actually play a part in your little indie feature if you know the multi-million institution that is the Hollywood version. Like, you know, as much as I enjoyed your version of Terminator 2, I must <laughs> confess that uh. the the nakkikioski tappelu that you have in your film is it's not exactly the steel mill fight that we have in <laughs> James Cameron's version. Oh, you're not saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, could, I could see that there were some pixels in the special effects that were just not completely up to par. <laughs> yeah, we took a lot of shortcuts, didn't we? Yeah, it was... We were thinking where we were going to shoot this and then one day I was just, I was walking past this industrial site and I decided, okay, we have steps, we have something where to smash people and I have, yeah, it's done, it's decided in five minutes, some of those things there, you can see it. But that's kind of the awesomeness of it sometimes, in my opinion anyway. Since you mentioned the location scouting and how you managed to find something that the actors could use to hit each other in the final fighting scene, I have to ask, you know, how much effort it took from you to find the world's smallest piece of 2x4 that can possibly exist? <laughs> Because I, I have seen fucking toothpicks bigger than the piece of plywood that your actors <laughs> use in the final fight scene. If I remember correctly, it was found at the site and we just <laughs> used it. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Terminator 2X, it, it was indeed this little thing I did from 2004 to 2007. Yes, it took way too much time. We shot it in 2004, 2005, and then I finally finished it when I got off my laziness in 2007. Me and my old friend Sami, we have always been big fans of T2, so we also wanted to shoot something with a camera, and so one of us had the brilliant idea of basically remaking T2 with a zero budget, but we had only one camera, and next to nothing else, we had no lighting, no camera stands, no crew, no storyboard, nothing except this script and a shooting calendar of sorts. And that was the fun challenge we wanted for ourselves to see what would happen if you just roll it and, and roll it just with basically nothing and see what happens. Well, the end result is there on the celluloid. So you have to understand that we did this. Uh, this was never supposed to be a serious setup and we didn't want it to be. And if you don't know that background, then you automatically will probably hate it. But perhaps that sometimes made some actors crazy because, of course, the adults wanted clarity and clear suiting schedule. And then there was the infamous camera malfunction and other stupid problems. 
So finally what was supposed to be around a month's shoot dragged into two summers and a couple of shoots in December. I struggled to complete it, but at least it took less than the Chinese democracy from Guns N' Roses to complete. <laughs> I was kind of referring myself sometimes to Axl Rose, like you know, I was saying as a joke to everyone, you'll see it when you see it. <laughs> but we finally got it out. Well, <laughs> I hope it was at least a little entertaining for you. I must say that at least seeing the movie, I did not notice any effect that would have come from stretching throughout the year. Well, that's good. It's funny sometimes to look back. You have one scene of one person walking shot from this angle and then the year changes to 2005 and you see him from this angle and then it changes back to 2004. It's all craziness. Yeah, I did not notice any of that. So in that sense, there was really great consistency when yeah, it came it, to your indie feature. I have to point out that this was indeed made before I even finished my media studies and I had next to no experience of almost anything like on a more professional gear or stuff like that. Looking at it now, I would do almost everything differently. And if I'd carry my whole extended family to the picture like that, I would take the quality way more seriously. But this film became exactly as good or bad as was the effort or the scale of the operation during its filming. But that being said, going off only by memory of scenes and cinematography of the original during filming this, you know, just imitating that and throwing some jokes and ideas into it, how to come by our limitations or of preparation, tools and understanding of cinema, basically pulling this movie in its entirety straight out of my ass right there and then it's not too bad in that sense after seeing it like after a few years i kind of surprised myself about how this how smooth the pace was on the truck chase action scene considering all that i just said it's my favorite moment from this one but <laughs> yeah no particular defenses here it's it's what it is now this is exactly the reason why whenever i had found myself tied into this amateur film projects. I most definitely have made sure that I have deleted all the evidence of them ever existing. <laughs> no. I've I've burned the scripts, I've formatted all the disk drives, then I've misused those disk drives for years so that they broke down on their own impossibility at the end. And today there is no solid proof to be found anywhere that I've ever would have actually taken part in an amateur film project aching to your Terminator 2 axe. <laughs> That's not true. You, you can do that. You have to respect... You can't wipe out your past. Except you just did, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that is the kind of the professional way of, of dealing with your amateur film history. <laughs> You deny it, you erase it, and then you spend the rest of your life pretending that it never happened. I've been eternally sad that we had a James Bond film <laughs> that we shot back in 1997 or something. Uh, somebody lost the tape. Funny when it comes to the relationship of Aku acting in the movie as John Connor or Yoni Koivu and Vesa acting as the, the 810.5. I would say that you could draw parallels with the relationship of Eddie and Arnold. They were truly like the best buddies at the set, always cracking jokes, and they still are. They spent a lot of time together playing around and having a great time. 
Um, but alright, if you want to look at this masterful piece of cinema, you can find it on YouTube, for example. Terminator 2X. Let's move on. So, Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of our main actors, obviously. We're going to be very obvious here because everybody has seen this movie, but hopefully that's one of the reasons for you to listen to this podcast tonight. Arnold, I don't know you, but for some reason I'm still calling you with your first name. That's weird like that. He's an actor, politician, ex-bodybuilder, considered to be one of the best in bodybuilding. Was in Conan and the Barbarian, which is his breakthrough movie and role from 82. Also starred in Commando, Predator, Total Recall, True Lies, The Running Man, and of course The Terminator, Terminator 3, and Terminator Genesis, unfortunately, those two. Crazy past, with several extramarital affairs. Well, we don't really care about that in this podcast, because we don't have, I don't have feelings, so... Anything about Arnold, or next? Uh, let's just move to the next. Yeah, well then we have Edward, Eddie Furlong. Unknown kid from the street, he was just discovered for the part by casting director Mali Finn while he was visiting the Pasadena Boys and Girls Club in 1990 of September. It took a while to make Edward feel at ease with Arnold, but they got it going. You know, <laughs> your first movie is Terminator 2 and you are going to act opposite of Arnold Schwarzenegger, your movie hero. So, yeah. World famous from all the drug rehabs. Unfortunately. He has also some other, if we are going to go to this gossip route, you know, starting when he was 13, he was already dating somebody who was 26. It was his former tutor, Jacqueline Domac. So, yeah, imagine that. Apparently, during the filming of this movie, Edward Furlong was already dating somebody, a woman who is 26. And then the California law changed later, and his guardian, Sean Furlong, filed a complaint against Domac to try to prosecute this Jacqueline Domac for sexual acts with a minor, but it didn't work. He was unable to get her prosecuted for some reason. Yeah, and then there is this whole drug thing, and... He's not going to be in the new Terminator either. The new Terminator, Terminator 6, is going to be a direct sequel to Terminator 2. <clears throat> and unfortunately, uh, Edward is not going to be there. Other notable roles for Mr. Furlong is American History X, Before and After, and Little Odessa. Did I miss something worthwhile? Uh, you most definitely missed Night of the Demons from 2009 and Paranormal Abduction from 2012. <laughs> okay. Like, like the two shining diamonds in Furlong's career. Wasn't it Pet Cemetery 2? <laughs> as, as far as I can actually remember, I, I have a faint recollection that Pet Cemetery 2 would have been better than its reputation. Mm, yeah, mm, it was a, um, I could watch it. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's it, yeah, really hard to say. It's it's been years since I've seen Pet Cemetery 2, but yeah. the biggest problem I had with that film was that it kind of tried to do this balancing act between a dark horror story and these weird comedical elements that were inserted into that film, and I really hated the comedical elements. Oh, but come on, who who doesn't love the scene where the, is it dad of the family sits in the table at the house eating and being a total pig about it and then there is Edward Furlong and some other kid 
terrified and trying to fake their laugh when watching this this train wreck. It's a scene that could have worked. Like there was a good idea and good idea behind it. But goddamn, does the material in that scene suck? <laughs> it's about as bad as the kill by the BMX bike that happens. Was it later in the film where the dad now jumpified kills that one bully with a BMX bike using it kind of like a saw, something aching to that. Okay, sounds like the Halloween Five script. Yeah. Linda Hamilton, I couldn't find anything that noteworthy. She's been a lot in television, on television. She was born in Maryland, was married to Cameron, was it around 97? And at the time she suffered from depression and bipolar disorder, which ended both of her marriages. And explains to Dante's peak. Tell me more. What? You, you haven't seen Dante's peak? I have, so... The, the ter- terrible volcano movie with Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, okay, I was thinking that you were insinuating that uh, she moved to that role to get romantically involved with somebody else, but let's forget that. That during shooting of T2, she suffered permanent hearing damage in one ear after she fired a gun in an elevator without her earplugs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's nice to hear because I was watching that scene and actually thinking, you fucking idiots. Yeah. Having a firefight in an elevator shaft. Uh, yeah, that in itself. What are you doing shooting at the metal, right? <laughs> yeah. Other notable roles. Surprise, surprise. We have the Terminator and we have uh, Children of the Corn, if you can... If you can say this is some kind of a career highlight, but she's there and I have seen her there. So that's there. Then we have Mr. Robert Patrick. Cameron was looking for someone who can perhaps resemble a bit Kyle Reese to again perhaps fool the audience in the beginning about the two Terminators characters' motivations. Because James Cameron said, quote, if the 800 series is a kind of a human panzer tank, then the 1000 series had to be a Porsche. And they succeeded. Another quote that he said, the thing I liked about Robert was he kind of looks like a cat in a way. And he does. He was also dead broke during the filming of T2, but T2 made him even more broke. No, he actually everything changed after T2. He was well off, of course. During filming, he also married Barbara Hooper, and they're still married. And moving on from the gossip section, other notable roles for him, the faculty... Safe House, I guess. Ladder 49, Walk the Line, Fire in the Sky. Mm, X-Files, obviously, as a TV series. And for that, he won the Best Actor on TV Saturn Award. He's also a non-lead baddie shortly in Die Hard 2. He was also in that one from Dusk Till Dawn sequel and Double Dragon. Yay. The video game adaptation to end them all. I meant to, of course, because in this podcast we do not do piracy, I was, of course, perfectly able to acquire Sega Mega Drive and, of course, to get the Terminator 2 game and test drive this game. So in this game, you are the Terminator. Controls are very clunky. You're not always sure what you're supposed to do. And you die from the first hit. And you don't die from the first hit. But it's... <laughs> what? It, it's not a real Sega Mega Drive game in that case. 
It is. So you you have this power, and when you run out of power after like 50 hits, then you have this backup power, of course, and that then that runs out, then you die, and the judgment day awaits. It was a, it felt like a terrible game. It didn't get really good reviews. Yeah, I I myself have played previously a load of Terminator related video games and arcade, and from that collective experience i can say that all the terminator games are pretty terrible and pretty much complete waste of time and money like there are few good games but i would say 90 percent of all terminator related video games sucks ass yeah the brother of robert patrick explains the nine inch nails t-shirt that i saw Robert Patrick wearing in some of those behind-the-scenes shots. So his brother is Richard Patrick, former guitarist of Nine Inch Nails and lead singer of the rock bands Filter and Army of Anyone. So look that up if interested. But that covers the main actors, the four leading stars. Schwarzenegger, Furlong, Patrick and Hamilton. Yeah, maybe still Earl Bowen. Hmm? who played the Dr. Silberman here and actually is second to Arnold, the actor with most entries in this franchise. Yeah, well, if you have to pick up Earl Bowen, then I will pick out Joe Morton as well. He does a great performance here, a very important character. Joe Morton, who has had an interesting career as a discount bin Morgan Freeman. I mean, he's done a lot, and he has been in pretty big features through his career. Like, Joe Morton is a man who you've seen countless of times in very interesting Hollywood features, but whose roles also have been something that, well, Morgan Freeman has done them in some extent previously, and whereas you remember Morgan Freeman extremely well, you most likely won't even notice Joe Morton. Or were you holding your breath when you saw Morton in, for example, Justice League? My life changed that instant. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it did. Henrik, before we go scene by scene, let's pick up this subject that we have kind of avoided and a little bit evaded and slightly covered in previous episodes about the replacing of characters. Can you replace Edward Furlong's John Connor? I say no. Well, I, w- I would say that they already did. Yeah, well, they tried. If you change the actor, you have, a, have to at least try to make it your own. But there's a fundamental problem there. You don't have the maneuverability here that you have with, say, again, James Bond. It's a good example. Don't shoot me. James Bond never had a solid continuous timeline with several Bond actors. That much is clear. But James Bond never really rebooted itself to the point of imitating some previous actors' steps. They were really their own force to reckon with. The fundamental problem comes with a story that is on a continuous timeline. Okay, albeit Terminator's whole thing is messing with the timelines. Yes, yes, yes. But of course, the audience will want to see the same John Connor, not Christian Bale or any of that crap. I don't know. I I myself have not missed for long in this franchise. Hmm. I have. John Connor is Edward Furlong. 
to me and you break the timeline when you change the character on a timeline. If you take that away from the story continuum, Edward Furlong, it will purely and simply hurt the film. The only proper option that you can do under the limitations set by the Terminator story itself is to leave out the character of John Connor entirely. And yes, that doesn't really work either. But those are your options. Yeah, well, I won't be winning any friends by saying this, but I was really okay with Nick Stahl in no. Terminator 3. And I also was pretty okay with Christian Bale in Terminator Salvation. I could barely go through Terminator Salvation. Yeah, I said I'm okay with Christian Bale in Terminator Salvation. I did not make a statement that Terminator Salvation would be a good movie. Praise Lord. But it does have some interesting ideas. Terminator Genesis had some interesting ideas. It's just too bad that it destroyed the series. <laughs> well, <laughs> destroying the franchise in itself is an interesting idea. Terminator 2. It starts with the highway shot. Wide shot of a highway. Intercut with kids playing in the playfield. And then the suggested explosion happens and everybody dies. And then we cut to the future scenes and we have the James Cameron's blue collar at play right there. These puppets, so-called endopuppets, are one-third scale from the first film. They were go-motion animated in front of a pair of rear-projected Vista Vision plates showing a smaller scale miniature landscape and explosions. So there were two versions of puppet shots and they were then rear-projected side by side behind a pair of full-scale endo puppets from Stan Winston, which were shot handheld, then animated lasers were optically added to finalize. The final piece, it's great work and it's quite seamless. Sometimes you might see some of this little shaky motion in the flying apparatuses. You can see the money here. I wish they would go back to this, because it's always more believable when you have some puppets there as well. They can add authenticity. It's always slightly different than animation. Sometimes, sometimes it is. Even though I'm a huge fan of practical effects, you have to admit that there are times when the practical just won't work. And there are times when actually using CGI would have been a better call to make. Yep, I think Terminator 2 is quite about the perfect example of having the perfect symbiose of all of these different techniques. So we have the puppets, and we have the rear projection, and we have some 3D. And they are used very sparingly, which is not the case these days. Just look at Genesis. You can't just, every single frame almost, it's just exploding with CGI effects. If you can't do something in CGI, then you do it with puppets. If you can't do something with puppets, then you don't do CGI. In many cases, it actually would also help the puppet to enhance it with a, just a little bit CGI. Uh, whatever works the best, go with those. And it's not going to be constant CGI. People can tell, it gets tiresome. I don't know, I was completely taken away by Vistas in the Star Wars prequels, all of which looked completely natural and realistic. Almost like you would be there on the site yourself. <laughs> was that a serious comment? In any way. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Since we're in the opening titles, we can already see the 
attention to, to the detail, the art department here. Adam Greenberg did the cinematography. Something that is notable here is that you could pretty much take, to quote one of our guests from before, you could take a picture of almost any frame in this movie and it would look great. There's something specific that he does. He leaves a lot of empty space around the frames, making it feel... You feel comfortable watching this movie all the time. It's not a horror movie, so I think that works here. And you can clearly see the environment. Of course, it helps that this is, I believe, 2.40 to 1. Everything's done a little bit better here than in Terminator 1. Well, technically. The arrival of Arnold. They have more money. They have CGI, yes. But everything is more polished. Then we have the bar scene in the Coral Bar, which doesn't exist anymore. And behind we hear... What was this country song? Anyway, one of the most well-known scenes in cinema history, I would say. But of course it has nothing to our Terminator 2X version. This was those times when you still didn't have the internet everywhere and the, all of the people were not still even sure when they got to the cinema if Arnold would be playing the bad Terminator or the good Terminator or what was the whole deal with this plot. And it wasn't clear at least even in one of the trailers that got out directed by Stan Winston, which saw the Terminator in the assembly line. And the Terminator was babbling about himself, and that was the trailer. And by now, Arnold Schwarzenegger was kind of all over the pop culture, and making him the bad Terminator at this point probably would have been a bad idea. People wanted to see something different. I would almost say that people ended up wanting to see something different after they got it. Like, bad Arnold Terminator would not have been... I guess any kind of a deal breaker to anyone, except now that you have Terminator 2 and you have the good Arnold and you've seen kind of that dynamic. Now you can say that it would have ruined the film if Arnold would once again have played a bad guy Terminator. But it's only with this hindsight. Hmm. We use the blue light in almost all the night scenes are blue lighting. And this scene where T-1000 appears, he of course kills, most likely kills, this policeman Austin. And what do you know, Robert Patrick later, when he got a child, a she, and she got the name Austin because of this scene. Which also begs the question, not to complain too much about Robert Patrick's appearance, but it does make me wonder why T-1000 is so fixated on looking like Robert Patrick. Like with Arnold, I can kind of take it that, well, T-800 is just a metal endoskeleton with a skin kind of a just put over it. So T-800 can't help but to look like Arnold. But with T-1000, we have a liquid metal terminator who can shapeshift basically to anyone. So why in that case choose Robert Patrick? What is the meaning for T-1000 to look like Robert Patrick? Mm, yeah, there is no point, is there? Because he, he could... Only thing I could think of is that there is some kind of limit how many different appearances he can take, but that doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I was always kind of a... On seeing the, it the first time, I was kind of expecting the scene would have played out so that the cop arriving to the scene 
checking out the perimeter would have been Robert Patrick. And then just this plain liquid metal T-1000 would kill the cop and from the dead cop he would take the appearance. Or he would take the cop's appearance and from that point onward he mm. would have looked like Robert Patrick. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case because the T-1000 has already locked himself to look like Robert Patrick even before he faces the cop for the first time. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that this, well, the movie is saying that maybe the Terminator has an ego. He doesn't want to masquerade. He wants to take the default appearance. But I always thought that the default appearance was the liquid look. But apparently it's not. It's Robert Patrick. Maybe it's trying to hint us that in its core, T-1000 actually is a homosexual. Why? Because you told me to. Well, because of this fixation on Robert Patrick. <laughs> the legal guardians of John Connor are Janet Goldstein and Sander Berkeley. Next notable scene is Sarah in the Pescadero State Hospital for the criminally insane. Showing you that Sarah Connor may be a super capable warrior woman, but she still does not have the brain power to just lie about her motives when originally being arrested for trying to explode the cyberdyne. Exactly. I really like this how this movie is shot. Everything is where you want it to be in the frame. I don't know which version you have. I have the extended remastered version. So I have all the extra scenes. For example, now we have the scene where the two guards in the hospital are hurting Sarah in her room. Have you seen all of this? Yeah, I also have. I have the Finnish Ultimate Collector's Edition or the 3-disc DVD version of the film, which also has the extra 16 minutes of, in the end, somewhat unnecessary material. Yeah, don't know if it was the fact that I've seen this movie in the theatrical form so many times that I've these many of these scenes felt unnecessary and distracted because of that or is it because they are really unnecessary and most of them are i do like the scene where we go inside miles dyson's home and you get a little bit more about the miles dyson character so you understand that he's not just this that he's a family man which is important because well yeah well in the theatrical cut you don't You see that he is a family man, but you don't know if he is completely religiously involved in this project to the point that he would prefer not to destroy this ship, although he helps to do it. But um, yeah, I think it it's nice that you get the full picture of this guy. I don't know, to me, the extra scenes that we now get with Dyson does not bring anything more to the character. I got Dyson as a character pretty much to the T on the theatrical cut already. So these extra scenes do not give me anything new, any new perspectives on Dyson. In theatrical cut, you still have, yes, the scene at Cyberdyne when he's looking at the endoskeleton arm and the guard is asking about the family. How's the family? Yeah, that gives you something still. 
Yeah, you see the family in, in the theatrical cut, and... Yeah, you do, but... Uh... Yeah, and you see them caring for each other in the theatrical cut, so basically what you get now is few lines of material. Mm. Uh, it's not essential to have this Miles Dyson scene, work, but it was nice to see. But the fact that Miles Dyson is already established before they get to the Miles Dyson building, that's enough, I would say. But to me, the most you actually get from these new scenes is the movies. I would actually say somewhat problematic approach to civilization, which seems to be kind of the running theme here on Terminator 2. What's that about? Well, basically, Terminator 2 is a movie that has quite a lot of problems with civilization and the elements that take place in a modern civilization. Okay. I mean, when you look at it, almost all the cases where the film presents you with some kind of a structure that we all have in our everyday life and which we have in, in societies. When Terminator 2 shows you societal structures, it shows them all in extremely negative light. Charles Foster parents are dicks and idiots. And John treats them with complete scorn simply for the virtue that they demand that John would clean up his room and for the fact that they try to be mom and dad to him. Because of that, they are bad people and something that John... John is actually given the right to treat them as he does with the sanitarium basically well everybody in the sanitarium is either complete idiot and aloof for not listening to sarah connor's pretty crazy rants about the upcoming judgment day and how it's going to be the end to all and if they are not that if they are not idiots then in that case they are either sadistic bullies like the orderlies shown in the now added 16 minute scenes or then they are creepy sex perverts as seen in a later scene when Sarah is escaping the institution mm. and even though T-1000 is the main antagonist of the film the secondary antagonist and the, the kind of a secondary opposing force to our heroes here in Terminator 2 is well basically police force. So we have repeatedly this setup where our renegade heroes go against pretty much anything that is a societal structure or somehow upholds a societal structure. And instead we are shown in positive light and as heroes of the film, a Mexican gunrunner, Sarah Connor, John Connor, who basically is a youth criminal, and then T-800. Mm. Well, when you have supporting actors like the foster parents to make them interesting to the audience, you still have to pick some quality out of them in that short amount of time to make people care about them or make people hate them or whatever the emotion is that you're looking for. Therefore, they are going to be D-I-C-K's in this case. And it's obvious that the people in the 
Pescadero State Hospital will treat her as a lunatic. So in that sense, they are not treating her incorrectly, except of course the beating and the sexual perversion or whatever that was that was going on there. Yeah, but basically, in the film's scenario, in the end, it turns out that, well, the people in the sanitarium were at wrong. And Sarah Connor was right. That is the whole setup of the fucking film. And by that virtue, the people in, in the sanitarium are doing to humanity in itself a disservice by locking Sarah Connor up. Because basically what humanity would need is completely the opposite. It would need Sarah Connor to be taken care of John, even though she's a pretty shit parent, and just going around, running free, collecting guns, collecting explosives, trying to explode public spaces, because Judgment Day. Yeah, but it's a, a, extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary gunshots and blasts and stuff from the future. But- uh, they do, they do. But basically, the only thing that is anyway a saving grace to Sarah Connor, or even to John Connor, the main, I would say, target of the film, is just that. It's the extraordinary circumstances. And simply by virtue of trying to kind of stop Sarah like you would actually want it to be done in civilized society, and locking her up, and trying to essentially treat her and treat her assumed mental illness. For example, Dr. Silberman gets his hands broken, almost get toxicated. <laughs> Later in Terminator 3, he's finally actually been done. Whereas here, he's just an idiot who does not know better and who does not realize that he should be listening to Sarah Connor when Sarah is yelling at him about the Judgment Day and who you can give a funny quip about how Sarah has stabbed him to the knee with a pen. Well, in Terminator 3, he finally is just a comedical yeah, well, kind of a person. He's, he's a one-sided joke. Terminator 3 is a self-parody. Yeah. And you can already see that road building up here on Terminator 2 where it's kind of a joke that Sarah Connor has stabbed him in the leg with a pen. So you're saying that we have this isolated case of isolated people who have experienced this isolated story of the Terminators and the Judgment Day, and you said it into this societal context, that it is a problem that the doctor is being, his arms are broken and he's a bad person because of this special circumstance. No, I'm saying it's it's extremely interesting that James Cameron makes a film where if it's not the super killer cyborg from the future T-1000, basically your enemies are the mental health institution, your foster parents, and the fucking police. Yep, well, of course they are. Yeah, of course they are. I mean, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mental health services. I would want to myself. Yeah. And, yeah, and like it says in the rap songs, fuck the police. <laughs> and this is a film where police do get fucked pretty heavily. 
Yeah, and it's fun. It, it, not literally, but you know, it's still. I do admit that watching Dr. Silberman in this film and back in the day when I was watching this as a younger viewer, I got this feeling that I don't want to be anywhere near these type of professionals. So maybe it kind of distanced me from public services or made me aware that uh, I don't want to be in this situation, of course, where Sarah is locked behind bars and nobody believes you. So maybe you can look at it from that angle that it also gives a bad rap for public services, but judgment day, what you gonna do? Please insert your stolen card now. I like this scene also just for the way that the camera is used once again. You don't see this a lot anymore in film. Because this is not just an action film. This is... Well, first, it's shot really well. It's shot very relaxed, I think, throughout. It's very clear what is happening everywhere. You don't get this chip-chop cutting that we love to do right now. And it knows when it has to stop. It has this relaxed camera. It has an action scene. It completes the action. Then it comes back to the relaxed. And then it builds up again. And then action. And then relaxes. And this is the, the stage as the mood of this film. And every single scene that you have, I would say, yeah, they naturally lead up to the next scene. So there is no moment where you would go just, no, I'm going to the bathroom now. This is getting boring. I do admit that there is a slight moment where it gets a little too bogged down. There is the moment when it's going to be in the later scenes, but you have this moment when they escaped from the Pescadero and they come to the gas station to do some fixing for the Terminator, and then they go to Enrique. And there is something that connects the gas station to the Enrique, but it's not as integral as all the other linkages that you see in this movie. But there is something around the New Mexico scenes. It's understandable why the movie slows down there, and there is this greatest fatherly a scene going on where Edward is bonding with Arnold's character and then Sir Connor understands what she in her mind needs to do to stop the judgment day and this again launches the next scene. So if there's any moment where this movie kind of slows down too much, it's New Mexico. I never had any problems with New Mexico scene. Outside of, of course, the already point that Enrique is some kind of a I don't know, paramilitaristic uh, weapon smuggler or something like that. And in here he is presented once again as an anti-authoritarian hero. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, well, where the New Mexico scene then leads up is an assassination attempt on maybe an upper middle class coder. But, you know, outside of that, I, I really don't have issues with New Mexico, uh, to me, it does not slow movie down that much. And you kind of need that build up. You need those slow moments and those quiet moments. You do. You. To uh, kind of a build up the craziness of the action that comes in the final third of the film. Yeah. I'm not saying that there is a problem. If you really want to look for something, then you could look at it from that area. But if you want to go through the like the structure more clearly, as we already started to talk about it, there is the future scene intro, which connects us to the present 
and then Arnold. Arnold is introduced, T-1000 is introduced immediately after, John is introduced immediately after, Sarah is introduced immediately after. Then more information is given about the characters, specifically Sarah who explains the whole deal before things escalate into the first action scene. It all builds to this drug chase. Then the 800 character motivation is given in this holy shit you're really real scene. Then there is the 1000 character motivation given because there was the drug chase. Then we have more character development of T-1000 in Hospital Chase. The whole group is now together. The Hospital Chase leads to stopover at the gas station. Now the gas station, more T-800 character development. But the scene could be argued to lose something when its goal of showing Sarah like trying to destroy the microchip was cut away in the theatrical cut. Yeah, even though I didn't really need that scene. But that scene maybe loses something there. There, There is this moment where Arnold tells that the computer is self-learning, a learning computer. So that's important information, yes. Maybe that scene would be could be slightly shorter, so you can get the whole show going into the New Mexico. But then it finally goes there. Between this gas station and Enrique, the movie rightfully slows down. Enrique's scenes give clear motivation, however, to move the Dyson scene. And the Dyson scene slows down again the pace. Perhaps too much when they talk together around Dyson's kitchen. And Dyson's scene again naturally moves to Cyberdyne scene. And the Cyberdyne scene moves to the quite long third act, right? And then you have the satisfying ending with plenty of emotions and food for thought about the value of human life and blah 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 and raw credits. So basically it never lets go. And that's great. No complaints, just the overview. But to get back to tracks, to follow the movie somewhat. T-1000 is searching for John Connor. T-800 is searching for John Connor, and T-1000 gets the lead of him being in the shopping mall called the Galleria, right? Yes, the Galleria. Yeah, it's a real shopping mall in Santa Monica Place. It's called Santa Monica Place. It was refurbished recently. It's in California. So it may or may not look like what it was in the film. That's where we go anyway. And we get through the back door <clears throat> to the scene where the Terminators meet. Now, this is, of course, cinema history. And uh, when the T-1000 <coughs> bullet holes heal, you know, we can see that. Those are always CGI. When the bullet holes appear, those are always physical gags. Spring-loaded from the inside, uh, triggered by remote control radio. This could be the perfect moment to use something like that. what is not CGI today. We have T-800 with the box with the roses. Well, is it an obvious reference to Guns N' Roses? Yeah, it is. I don't know, I I was hesitant on calling it a reference. Yeah, I do not know at what point they were signing the deal with Guns N' Roses, but must have been kind of early on, because they also had the music video with Arnold. So I could draw that conclusion from there, which is probably... Okay, yeah. But who knows, who knows. In the original script, or what James Cameron wanted to do in the first place, it was some other band, which could explain the horribly awkward from the side actor, the friend of John Connor when they are using the bike to get to Galleria. Because maybe that burr was supposed to be something that is actually in sync with the song that was previously intended, and maybe that played on the background at the set, who knows, but now it's You Could Be Mine and it's just burr. Yeah, could be. Hard for me to say since I am not... Why can't you say it? As well aware. You are the T-1000 of movies. 
I'm trying to take that one as a compliment. But yeah, I'm not as well in the movie music collaboration. Well, don't know about that. These stunt actors are pretty expertly hidden. You see John Gunner taking the bike and getting out of the parking lot and then almost driving over somebody immediately. And in the scene when he's almost driving over somebody immediately, that is, of course, a, a stunt actor there, but it's pretty well hidden and kind of probably the same height as Edward Furlong. It looks like it. You really have to pause this movie and you really, I think you have must have the Blu-ray. I think I remember watching this movie on VHS or DVD before trying to see if it was indeed Edward Furlong or somebody else, but I couldn't quite tell from this shot, but when it progresses, it progresses, and so the motorbike enters the highway in California, and right on entering, you can also say that there's a stunt actor at play, but again, you really have to kind of stop the, maybe on the bigger display, you can see that it's actually not Edward Furlong. Also, you perhaps see Edward Furlong's face or physical appearance change during this movie, because in the beginning of the movie, I believe he is older then in New Mexico. New Mexico was some of the first shots shot for this film, and there he is a little bit more childlike than on the bike, I would say. It's once again the crazy timelines of this franchise. <laughs> yeah, the shooting was very, really long, something like 170 days, was it? So a lot can happen in that time in young people's world. Also, I believe his voice changed, and that caused some problem in the post-production. And not to mention his height. And in some scenes, they had to do something to to the height difference. Edward Furlong got some hole that he would have to walk in, so that the height would be the same throughout the movie. That's what you get for getting somebody who is 13 into this production. Yeah, goddamn child actors. Well, we get to this flood control channel of LA. So they changed the course of our entire river to get this scene apparently made. This is also a very relaxed action scene. You know, watching this, you were almost expecting that this would get even wilder and crazier, but it doesn't ever go overboard. One of the biggest things about Terminator 2, for why it works, for me, for many people, I believe, is that, well, first of all, let's take something like Robocop. Ridiculous, right? Everything is ridiculous. But here, it's like James Cameron said, something like, the more ridiculous your plot the more realistic you have to make everything around it. And that's what this movie does. Well, even we can take the gas tank now. When the truck crashes, you see that there, there's actual reason why the truck explodes, because the gas is leaking now outside, and it's, it's meeting electricity. And there you go. He made an actual point to film that shot of the tank leaking. But isn't leaking tanks and... Loose wirings, kind of a go-to thing in action movies. Well, is it? You just well, I, I would, I would say it is. It, I mean, that's that's a setup and a payoff. Setup and payoff that is kind of a constantly being used, especially in action movies, where they show that something is leaking gasoline, and then something enters that gasoline, and and thing goes boom. Yeah, you know. Maybe you, you would still agree that there are attempts to... There's a lot of drama in this film, and it wants to be really realistic in many places. It wants to have this balancing act where it's uh, ridiculous, but still kind of believable. I'm convinced that in my Blu-ray, they have digitally changed the stunt actor's face in 
especially in the scene where it's most obvious, I think, unless I'm crazy. I remember the stunt actor of Arnold when he comes down this ramp to the flood channel. You see clearly that his face is different. It's a bigger face. I don't see it here. He had one frame where you can see the difference and see the switch they make with Arnold and the stunt actor. Yeah, but the point I'm making here, I don't see it anymore. And this is Blu-ray we're talking about, so... Okay, because I actually can still pick it up on my DVD. I have owned the the DVD, what was it, this DVD that you said it is. It's with those metallic covers, right? Uh, precisely that, yeah. Yeah, and it says T2 only. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly that. Yeah, that they haven't touched that. Yeah. I'm looking at T1000 on my screen, walking after the explosion and seemingly unharmed. Changing his appearance again to Robert <laughs> Patrick. <clears throat> so just about these effects. Just trying to understand this CGI here. Like, So I have a big technical question about this. When they did the computer animation for T2, they could not have had ways to export a very high quality image out in digital. So with my limited knowledge of the composition of 3D to optical images, my question is, how is it possible that the whole image on screen on the Blu-ray release looks so detailed during computer animated parts? Say, they have a background drop of the hospital when T-1000 literally gets his head together. In the forefront, we have the animation of the head getting back together again after Arnold's gunshot blast. How come there is such level of detail in the head even during the animation? Well, maybe there isn't. But if you actually look at the head after the animation completes, when you look very closely, at least on the Blu-ray, which is probably edited to hell, you can see after the animation that more details return back to the actor's face when the animation is finished. Well, this makes sense, because back in the day, who was doing 4K animation? Yeah, so you see, for example, these lines on the face, but it's quite subtle. Uh, what was the resolution at which they were rendering these animations? I would like to know, but I couldn't find any information. And at the time, you'd think they'd optically composite and print, for example, uh, the liquid T-1000 coming out of the elevator. And the background, you'd think, was never digitally rendered. Of course it wasn't. I'm quite certain of that. So you would think the foreground liquid was exported individually and optically composited with the background, right? But then how do you explain T-1000 coming out of the flames after his truck has exploded and the flames are seamlessly coming out of the flames after his truck has exploded and the flames are seamlessly blending with the animation? Well, you can explain it again with optical effects, optical math, the flames, but the panning camera plus optical math plus perfect blending, you, I don't know how you, you explain that. I need to read more about this subject, but you also can't explain the ever-famous moving through the bar scene with anything else than digital composition, right? Or I don't remember anything funny even happening when I was watching the 70mm in the theater. Like, for example, that the picture quality would be extremely uh, noticeably crappier around the picture where the animation is happening. But it is blended with optical film in film resolution, right? So, therefore... The final print must be still somehow optically blended. Or how the hell does it work then? <laughs> really need to read about this turn-of-the-century techniques or something like that. 
it's also seamless and it's 1991. Yes, the animation itself looks very soft. And once the animation goes away and when animation is replaced with the film itself, you can see some differences in picture quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is especially the scene of the Louis the guard getting killed. So I, I paid special attention to the way how the images behave when we see the floor and Louis walks off the frame and T-1000 starts to appear on the hospital corridor floor, right? So if you want to go to that scene, look at the leg close-up. Look at the floor, especially on the left upper hand corner when Louis is still in the frame. Then when Louis goes outside of the frame immediately after, compare that again, right before the T-1000 appears on the floor. You can see that the picture quality drops, it is more soft, and you will see that the picture will look more stretched, perhaps, on your version as well. Perhaps because of an easy-to-do mistake in post-production, with the animation clip, or some limitations of the software. And that picture stretch and that change in picture quality is still expertly masqueraded, at least on Blu-ray, when Louis starts to move away from the frame. So the digital clip replaces the film clip in stages. It's like a wipe. It's being changed in a sweep beginning from right to the left, following Lewis's foot motion. Don Stanton's uh, real-life identical twin was here. Dan Stanton was the T-1000 version of Lewis the guard. The real actor Don or Dan was the one who was then killed. And there's also a puppet there, in certain frames there. And that's not the only twins of this build. There's also Sarah and her twin sister, who is in the end and in the mirror scenes when they are repairing T-800. That's very useful in a movie like this where people are being copied and you seem to be lucky enough to have like the early 1990s Don Stanton to your movie. Where was he also in Gremlins 2? Yeah. And then you have Linda Hamilton and her sister, Leslie Hamilton Guerin. Okay. Enrique and the Mojave Desert in the movie. Shooting started in the fall of 1990 here. You wanted to tell something about the psychology of the film around the Mojave Desert. Well, there is the clear case about the uh, father-esque role of the 800 at least. Yeah, that there is. And that is also somewhat problematic on its own right. Mm -hmm. Please continue. Well, in Mojave Desert, Sarah Connor makes the notion how the 800 would be a perfect father candidate for... Sean Connor, and well, uh, first of all, it's a bad judgment call from Sarah's part, since uh, I would make the case that T-800 would actually make completely shit father figure for Sean, and it's almost a notion that I would hazard to say stems awfully clear to the subject of toxic masculinity. And which part is it toxic? Do we have toxic femininity as well? In a way, yeah, we do. If, if you would say that John T-800 and Sarah make up a family dynamic, I would actually say that that family dynamic would be toxic to its core, to a point where John Connor actually would be something like a school shooter waiting to happen. You're saying it's toxic... As an example on the movie screen, are you saying that it's toxic in the mechanics that they would have in real life in at home? 
I, I would say it's already in, in the scenario that the movie plays out. Yeah, but it's... Um, no, I didn't get that. I never really got that feeling, I have to say. Okay, because to me, basically, both Sarah and T-800 pretty much express themselves mainly through aggression. From Sarah's part, it's pure emotional aggression. Well, where her interactions with others usually go through either by yelling about the Judgment Day or then by taking violent action in some form or the other. The only one of the trio who actually, for example, sets a tear openly within the group is John. Yeah. Who then is kind of a shut down by T-800 who immediately makes the notion and wonders why, if there is something wrong with John's eyes. And the emotional kind of a response that John takes previously in the film, which is him risking his life to go to save his mom from the sanitarium, is also met with Sarah extremely aggressively telling John that it was a stupid mistake. And John almost fucked it up completely and fucked up the whole humanity. And that would be something that John should never actually do. And in these cases, John should put himself in the shoes of the future military leader and think the situations through with military precision, with military logic. What what is the logical thing to do here? And how best kind of uh, reserve resources, most notably John. And the emotional thing to do, which would be a young boy worried about his mom and taking this risk to save his mom. Well, it is a mistake here. It's played as a mistake here. It's something that you get scolded for. And going with that notion into the scene where Sarah mentions how T-800 would be kind of the best father figure ever. It, it's, it also stems from this kind of a same line of thought, where T-800 is seen as a perfect father, not because T-800 would anyway be able to connect emotionally with John or understand the emotional turmoil that, a, for example, a teenage boy would be going through or anyway be emotionally present in John's life. T-800 is seen as a perfect father simply because T-800 can take a punch, is extremely good at hitting people if need be, and because he can act as a physical guardian to John. And that's pretty much the only reasoning that is given why T-800 would be such a great dad. He's such a great father figure because he would always be there for John, meaning he would not do all these humane mistakes. He would defend the family at all costs. Yeah, but he would defend the family at all costs and be there for John only in physical sense. Yeah, well... Emotionally, he would not be anywhere near the situation since, well, basically, even getting a generic idea about the concept of emotions is kind of the high point of T-800's 
all are here. Well, here we here we get to my favorite discussion point. As we have talked about it in this podcast before, I'm not really siding with the emotional human being in the sense that they usually make the wrong decisions. And the 800 is here to do the logical decisions as far as it concerns John Connor's well-being at least. Which is also something that he is not completely able to do or would not be completely able to do. Would the film kind of hold its ground on T-800 being a cyborg? You're putting too much emphasis on, on what John, Sarah Connor is saying. I understand Sarah Connor's perspective in the sense that she has been in the mental institution for for long just doing push-ups and stomach moves or what have you and then she finally gets out of there and what does she see she sees his son with the terminator in a very dangerous area with the killer cyborg liquid polyalloy stuff so i understand it from sarah's point of view but My general reaction to Sarah Connor's comments, of course, was negative when she made those notions in the car. She should be more understanding at that moment. But given that, if John Connor's role is to save the entire humanity, and is more important, once again, more important than the family dynamics, which is looking at the bigger picture, yeah. at the humanity, that's what this movie is about. You know, saving humanity. That... that Yeah, that's what the movie is about. But can you imagine what what it will be for John? You know, for the next did I don't know, you take 20 it? years. What, what what about when John is 30? You... Because I can see a high high school full of dead kids. <laughs> did you really take it literally what Sarah Connor said at in New Mexico scene that he would always be there? Yes, but just a perfect father figure when she is comparing it against all the trash that she has seen before. And I don't think this is a feminist problem in any way. This is just making a point. I, I'm not making a claim that it's a feminist problem in any way. Yeah, but do you think that Sarah Connor would have made the perfect family dynamic with the Terminator? I don't think so. She's just talking. No, I, 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 I think that Sarah Connor is pretty lousy parent. And the family dynamic with John living with Sarah Connor and T-800, would that be allowed to continue? Would be kind of a pathway to destruction or at least one school shooting. And I, I think that from society's part, the decision to take John away from Sarah and locking Sarah up to the institution was actually the right decision to do and or at least would have been the right decision to do in any other scenario than the one finally given to us in the film where Sarah Connor is right and the judgment day is coming. Like the upcoming judgment day is the only saving grace for what Sarah as a character has done previously and does throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. You take judgment day away and Sarah Connor is a complete train wreck whose look at the world is completely twisted, downright dangerous, and the harm that she can cause to John is alarming. Perhaps, but it's it's warranted what we see right here. Who's to say that she won't change? 
as she seems to change in the future scene. If you get, watch the extended scene, she's a happy grandmother taking care of her grandkids. In a dream sequence. No, in a real life sequence, which ends the film. That's the alternative ending of one version. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm counting in only the official ending, the open road ending. Well, yeah. Well, okay. Fair enough. I didn't see this as a problem. Just to get rid of the Cyberdyne sequence. Well, was filmed in Fremont, California. It seems the shots of Arnold and the car explosions on the ground level were both filmed at the same time, simultaneously. Now, this is also what you can see suggested in the behind the scenes. Probably done to get a better continuity. Seems practical in this case. Because you're going to destroy everything anyway. And T-1000 driving out of the window of Cyberdyne. Done at location, first with bike, then separately with a helicopter, then optically composited together. And they actually blew up a real four-story office building, so that's the way to go when you make movies. Tanker chase, the helicopter that crashes is full-scale. Tanker is quarter-scale miniature, and also a full-scale one when they are. Using the tanker as a skateboard. Then we get to the steel mill factory. Lots of technical smart stuff going around with the, the, the how to do the lava. There are arc welders doing the sparks. Then there's a thin layer of water and oil and powdered sugar, which was flown down to create the effect of liquid metal with some lighting and some smoke added to complete the effect and voila. T-1000 last malformed form is the pretzel man just before he drops into the water, oil and powdered sugar. There were also problems to break up a sweat during shooting. It was about 5 Celsius at the set, or 42 Fahrenheit. And as we discussed, we have the emotional moment with the Terminator. And the girls are said to be crying when they watch Titanic. And the guys are supposed to be crying when they see Terminator too. So that happens or doesn't happen. And we roll credits. Just to kind of get the overview... The recap, the relaxed camera is there, wide angle, very, very good performances, especially from Sarah Linda Hamilton. Especially memorable is the one when she is in the hospital and giving the it happens <coughs> talk from the recorded tape. Not crazy cutting. I think especially well thought out cinematography. Film seems quite sensitive. There's a lot of grainy moments sometimes. Don't know if it's how visible in DVD. Crystal clear motives throughout the film. No stupid surprises. At the moment when Sarah says that it was only a question of which one of them would reach him first. That kind of sets up the film. And it's all about that until the end. Funny how also in my notes I have listed why shoot at the metal in the elevator. Uh, that it is. Uh, or why... The hell, both our Terminators constantly or repeatedly make mistakes when it comes to dealing with each other. Like T-800, in the Galeria shootout, T-800 first shoots T-1000 with a shotgun from a distance, but then for some odd reason decides to close in and go for the close perimeter, which is, is kind of a doofus move to make. If you are fighting against a Terminator that can heal itself and is made out of liquid metal, it's almost like the 800 wouldn't know how Terminators work. Mm. And vice versa, when the 1000 <laughs> at the steel mill completely forgets that, oh yeah, Terminators come with emergency battery. 
which allows T-800 to resurrect itself for the closing shots of the film. Yeah, there's two ways to look at this. You can look at this in the way that T-800 was brought to the future with the surprise that was not introduced to T-1000. T-1000 must be aware of some kind of records of how T-800 is made. And maybe the extra battery was added there to give the element of surprise for the old machine. Or it would be the case that T-1000 really doesn't care. He's just playing with the character and is willing to take the risk. Or believes that the machine is already in such a bad shape that I can continue. Or he thinks that time is of the essence and he is going to chase John Connor now in the steel mill, ignoring remnants of the 800. Yeah, or then the 1000 is simply counting on the fact that the 800 can overrun its original programming and let go of its obedience to John and the need to follow John's orders. And in that same vein, here, after getting so much damage, the 800 would kind of finally get tired of the whole situation and just go home. Wouldn't it be funny if at the last moments, just before he blows T-1000 to pieces to the pretzel man form, he would actually imitate the voice of John Connor, saying something like, I'm right here, I'm fine, and then blow him to pieces to distract him for a moment and cause chaos. But that would rob the scene from its, (laughs) I I don't know, macho attitude that it now holds. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, yeah, that scene also. Shooting frozen T-100 in the thousand pieces, which can actually defreeze much quicker than had he not shot him. Well, there are endless questions about the future, how the movie handles the whole time travel and the timeline. There's also a bunch of questions about how does the thousand even work? Where is like the central? How does it work if it's just liquid? Yeah, I don't understand. Liquid has apparently liquid microprocessors that are also liquid. Yeah, and liquid wiring and I guess liquid optics. Mm -hmm. Since T-1000 still has eyes, and I refuse to believe that liquid metal can in any way, shape or form work as a makeshift optical nerve, so that T-1000, in my opinion, would actually need some kind of a robotic eyes. Yeah. Like the 800 has to see anything, and I, I guess those are also liquid. Well, you're underestimating with me the technology of... The future. And that, let's, that, 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 let's say it's a, not just a mimetic polyalloy. Let's say it's a, what's the word for remembering something in the material? A mimetic rememberetic polyalloy, right? Okay, moving on. <clears throat> Extremely amazing everything. There's the extended scene before they come to Miles Dyson. There's a scene in the car with the Terminator and John, and John is giving too much lecturing to the Terminator. It's like he's saying, I'm not kidding, it's important. This is the moment where John Connor character gets a little bit out of hand. He's too smart for his age. There's too much emphasis on this philosophical stuff. John has advanced too much from being the tough guy vigilante to somebody who can actually explain the complex philosophical points about human life and human dignity all of a sudden. So that didn't work. 
talking about Dyson scenes and scenes leading to Dyson, how did you feel about that one moment when Sarah Connor got on a high horse simply for having a womb and yelled at Dyson how basically if you are not a woman, you don't know what it's, what it's like to create something. Create life and anything you create is is evil. <laughs> So, so what, 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 what would it be your take on, you know, on, on the subject at hand? Is male creation evil? No, she's making the generalization, maybe rightly so, of course rightly so, that men are more violent, they, men have more tendency to, okay, maybe not violence, but destruction. But it was an uncomfortable moment. Perhaps some feminists would draw some more points about that but go ahead but you're my guest you know well what do you want me to say I, i'm waiting your examples on, on the, you know the further points mm. to be drawn from from the sea mm. well come on don't leave me hanging here yeah of course you could say that james cameron with all the different points that you have also laid here you could make the point that james cameron is trying to is kind of leading the uh, some kind of women's movement of the early 1990s to draw attention to these things that okay that doesn't really work either. Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually make the claim that Cameron would be driving any or trying to make any women's movement here simply by you know going by with actually how a negative person Sarah Connor herself is. She is really negative, yeah, and seems, of course, very depressed, like the well, like the actor perhaps was, at least in later in life. Maybe that helps along with the performance, and there's nothing wrong with that. It looks good, but no, I'm not drawing the feminist stuff from this scene. Maybe I'm just drawing the fact that maybe Cameron wants to tell with this film in a lot of scenes that also the women are, can be very powerful. There can be very powerful female leads as we see here yeah that we do that we do i i mean if i would actually have to make a guess what has happened here with these scenes and with the themes and you know what i've called here on this episode problematic elements of, of the film i guess it's merely just james cameron trying to play with deep and complex ideas and concepts and yeah. not being maybe completely up to par with the task he's taken to himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now now you're touching that the key thing here. They're trying to kind of drop these little things about the human life and dignity and what it's to be human and all these little things are dropped to make the movie deeper than it is perhaps on the surface. And then it all kind of neatly completes in the end, when if you machine can also learn how the pain works, then maybe we can too, or something like that. <laughs> I'm forgetting the most important line in the movie, but yes. Yeah, at the same time, I, I'm not completely sure if the 800 actually ever learns, No. for example, the concept of emotion or feelings, or if he just gets, you know, that bare bones blueprint, like he he gets the mechanical idea. Yeah, it's basically saying, the final line is saying that even if a 
complete bolt for brains, stupid idiot machine can understand how things work around here, then maybe we can too. Yeah, but I, I would say also like the problem that with us humans, we would actually need to understand more than just how things work. And in that sense, I, I mean, to me, the final lines about if a machine, a Terminator can learn how to value or appreciate life or humanity, then we humans might also be able to do that. To me, it almost sounds like the movie is saying that on his final moments, the T-800 actually really learned about emotions and and would have learned to see emotional value and this deeper value in humanity. No. And I almost would question that if T-800 ever actually could be capable of doing that. Thank you. This was the flick lab and goodbye and good night. Yeah, just kidding, but this would have been the moment we would have done that. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> don't, don't worry. After this episode, we can close the podcast for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, we always want... This is what we set out to do in the beginning. Sorry to interrupt, but we started this with the... I started at least this with the intention that... We can say in this podcast exactly what we want to get out of the way, what we feel, and then we close the podcast. That's what we've done, and we have trouble with this more scripted format. Yeah, and the more kind of a dynamic and more quickly articulated format that we are now trying for the first time. Yeah, it's like I watch this film, I pick the next scene, this is where I try to get my head together and try to put something worthwhile on the audio. So basically, if you would be what I notice even more clear now, that you would have to script almost everything to nail it to the T with the time. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, about the human dignity and, and robots understanding it or cyborgs. Yeah, I mean, to me, that was the, what the movie was trying to hint at on that closing dialogue that T-800 would have learned to see the deeper value in humans. And I would counter-argue that T-800 as a machine is incapable of doing it in the end. Well, I thought it, it, it was clear that everybody understands that. Well, well uh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, like I said, and this is only my take on what the final words of the film meant but I got the feeling that James Cameron holds completely the opposite idea. That to James Cameron, at the end of the film, T-800 actually learns humanity and becomes human. And that's what Sarah Connor means when she's talking about... No, and maybe at some point us humans learning that also. Yeah, well, Sarah Connor is just picking up one point. One element there, not that he entirely understands everything about humanity, but he understands, well, does he? I mean, that's just his mission, to understand the value of at least John Connor's life. And with the learning that he gets on this trip, he also learns that he has to, by order at least, to understand the value of human life. And I don't th think this tear-jerker moment is changing anything, he just understands how tears work. Because somehow he didn't understand that before, before time traveling. Yeah. So that, that's kind of, that's, mm. that's kind of a, 
I also would suspect that would happen and what would be the lesson that the 800 would take. But I still feel that the movie is trying to argue with me that no, actually, T-800, well, almost became human, or did come human, on that theatrical moment. He became human enough for these two. And the closing moment is, maybe it's a little bit kind of grasping at straws. It's trying to connect that with the last line, of course. And, hmm, if a machine can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too... Yeah, I don't know if it's arguing anything. It's just making the point that people are dummies and we need to learn something from the Terminator and we need to be better and it's a good way to make people cry. And and it's also making the audience, I believe, to understand this better. That we can do better than this. It's really sad that there's these things that we have to be afraid of, Judgment Day, and the solution is to be not a dumbass. Yeah, I, I on the other hand... Instead of Judgment Day, I took the line and I tied it with the point that was made previously in the film about the human's violent nature and the violent tendencies that we humans seem to have as living creatures. And I tied the final line into that moment. That's kind of funny, comparing the actual the creator of Chaos with the... Uh the moral challenges of humanity. Yeah, and that, that was the reading I caught, that that would be what the film is trying to to say. But because there, there is that scene where where John explains to the T-800, oh, actually, T-800 makes the notion that humans and humanity is, is self-destructive on its violence. This, this was back at the gas station where they see the two kids playing with the toy guns and arguing on who shot who and who is dead. And and John is like, well, we are screwed. Humanity, I mean, and the 800 makes a notion something like, yeah, yeah, you humans are driven to self-destruct or something like that. Yeah, that... And... That... Yeah, and I, I typed the final quotation from Sarah Connor about you know, us humans needing to learn to see the value or appreciate the life. I tied that into the gas station scene. Yeah, it's in, in it's in your nature to kill yourselves. Or and because of this, there is something that we could learn from T eight hundred: the value of human life and not be as self destructive as T eight hundred previously has said that we are. Is T eight hundred even actually? capable of learn, learning about humanity in that sense. No, I, I never got that point, I think. Just got the point that it's making the point that we need to be more rational, once again, which is thought in this film by a creation made by humans, a machine made by humans, the violent people, making the machine do violent deeds for the violent humans. Many levels. Then again, since we are touching the rationality of the machine here, how did you actually feel during the end of the steel mill scene when T-800 kind of kills itself? Was that actually... How did you feel about the rationality? It's hard to... Hmm. How rationally did T-800 actually act on that moment? 
taking into notion that it was supposed to be obedient to John and follow John's orders. Yeah, I always know that that thing. So that tells me that there were certain rules that override the command of John. And it is rational in the sense that how this machine was programmed. Of course, everything that the Terminator does is not rational, so it's not very rational to pull the rational Terminator argument here too far. Yeah, because I I always took it that it's just James Cameron actually forgetting his own rules. Mm, Well, the Terminator had to save the humanity by destroying itself. Well, yeah, that it did. Yeah, but yeah, it's not it's not explained. No, it's it's just one of those moments that just come kind of out of the blue when you are watching the film for the first time. But it kind of works because he... it works as an emotional moment in the film. Yeah, like you said, it's a tearjerker moment. Yeah, it's the moment where the the audience understands that. Well, the John is going about this. I order you not to go. I order you not to go. And the audience gets what the point is. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also the scene where where the machine that has been programmed to follow John's orders actually does completely the opposite, makes his own mind and does not follow John's orders. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we've covered the movie. Let's do some quotes quick. Anything to note? Pretty damn quotable film. Of course. <laughs> but mostly all the quotes at this point have been done to death. It was like two months after this movie came out and everybody was continuously quoting Hasta la Vista Baby and all, all the other lines. Yeah. To the point where at this point my ears almost start to bleed. If I even think about those days. Yes, so I'm actually consciously skipping those and I'm just gonna display here some of the lines that always stuck with me through my friend or I just noticed that these are kind of funny. So mostly they are Arnold lines. Nothing long, nothing philosophical, just something that catched interest. For example, it's... it's <sighs> I'm weird, you know? I like lines that contain no special information. But just the way that they are said is probably why I stick with this. Okay, Arnold says, this is regarding the giving the orders early on in the film. Arnold says, because you told me to. And there is a, when they're escaping from the hospital, T-1000 is following them. Arnold says to Linda Hamilton, here, drive. I don't know how much quote is, I see everything, but I throw it out there as well. And T-1000 has an excellent line in the end get out and of course the legendary remote control and who could ever forget this one here hold this and of course the legendary person at the ward the black guy sarah is with the needle i will pump him full of this shit i swear and the next line is so he backs off and i do like the deer jerker line of course i know now why you cry but it's something i can never do Goodbye. Or this legendary quote. Hey Donald, I have a great idea. Why don't we switch jobs? That was actually from an Instagram clip from Arnold Schwarzenegger's account referring to Donald Trump. See, now you are also getting us into trouble with the US politics. Oh, it it was just an innocent line referring to switching (laughs) jobs. Role play. 
And you like that, don't you? Only the erotic kind. Ooh. What would you improve in T2? I guess I would try to take a second look at the themes of the film. And kind of, kind of a, like, if you want to have all these deep themes in your movie, I, I would perhaps prefer that they would be hold stronger and brought even more to the upfront so that you would have a deeper and longer conversation and discussion about those themes. Well, if the 800 is the tank and the 1000 is a Porsche, then this movie is at least a Ferrari. And it, it takes many elements from previous movies. It makes it work on the whole. There are some awkward moments, maybe. The biggest problem with all this psychological stuff in this is... The scene in New Mexico when John says that we're not going to make it, are we? Especially when my microphone is falling off. But no, I would not specifically improve anything. Favorite performance, Linda Hamilton, for me. It's going to be a difficult pick because basically the whole main cast does absolutely fantastic job here. Yeah, special mention to Edward Furlong because... This is his first movie. And some have said that he gives a kind of a shaky performance here. Sometimes he is outstanding and sometimes maybe less so. I didn't have any major problems. Neither did I. Neither did I. I, I think Furlong did a great job altogether all throughout the movie. And well, it it is all choking aside. It is quite sad what happened to Furlong and... yeah. And the fact that he did not manage to keep it up. Shame about the drugs. Shame about about the lost career. Shame about the lost talent. Because he he was a was an actor. He he was a kid who actually had a tremendous potential. Not just going by T2, but also for example American History X or the Animal Factory. Like he had a fucking huge loads of potential, and it's it's a shame that it went to waste. Yeah, hard to say on behalf of somebody else, like a other human being with his own life, so I don't want to get too personal about talking about Furlong, but it definitely seemed that he partly got in trouble because of the huge baggage of fame from Terminator 2. You're just a kid who is working in some center with other kids or just playing with some video games and what have you, and then somebody one day comes to your place that you inhabit and then you're pulled into this crazy machinery of Arnold Schwarzenegger and one of the most successful movies in in the history and was it the most successful movie at, at that time yeah I believe it was at least it completely terminated at the box office yeah your wallets are terminated but yeah to go with my favorite performance pick it's gonna be cliche but I'm fine Going with cliches here. I'm gonna be Schwarzenegger. Okay. I'm not going. To, I'm going to resist the urge to put some cliche quote here. So moving on. Favorite scene. Mine would be yeah, the truck chase that really gets your adrenaline going. Yep. Yeah, uh, on my half to once again to go with the cliches. I guess I would have to pick the tearjerker at the end. Okay. Favorite quote? I guess the Linda Hamilton's final words at the end of the film. 
about humanity and other such nonsense. Hmm. Beautiful nonsense. I sure as fuck am not gonna pick Hasta la Vista, baby. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it, Ripley. Poof. My favorite quote. I didn't put this anywhere. Let's see. See, that's why you cannot do our studio. Yeah, it's it's a tough and unfor- unforgiving format. Yeah. Now I remember when I was at school and I was we were doing a video game talk show and we interviewed one guy from one Finnish gaming studio. And of course it was formatted to hell. You really couldn't get, of course, not too deep into anything and you couldn't follow your lines of thought to the very end. Which is understandable when you're doing TV, but we're not doing TV, so fuck it. Um, fine, I'll I'll go with the beginning quotes of Sarah Connor. I can remember it better in Finnish from our movie. Kolme miljardia ihmishenkeä kuoli 29. elokuuta 2013. Ydinsodasta selvinneet kutsuivat sotaa hemmetin huonoksi päiväksi. Tai jotain. And so on and so forth. Interesting how she sounds so pessimistic and tired and worn out, but still makes it sound like interesting storytelling. Even at the end, well, everything was great and we... Finally I can see the future as something positive and still I talk like I'm totally tired. First image that comes to your mind. Would be the very opening of the film with that unnamed T-800 standing amidst the rubble and human bones. You stole my first image. Silliest moment. We're not going to make it, are we? But it doesn't take me out of the movie. Yeah, nothing nothing that would take me out of the movie. No. Here, yeah. I guess the moment when Arnold is trying to learn how to smile. Oh my god. Once again, yeah. (laughs) But that's a scene played completely for laughs and to give some levity to the proceedings. Yeah, I do like when he puts his funny face back into the serious default mode again. But yeah, totally unnecessary. We did kind of, (laughs) for some reason for this short movie that we did, well, 52 minutes, we implemented a bunch of those deleted scenes, especially the smiling part. Uh, Pacing, pacing is great. Acting is great. Music is great. Thank you for joining us. Anything to note about Brad Fiedel's soundtrack? Mm, no, I would say nothing. The theme is, is legendary. Soundtrack is used well throughout the movie. Yeah, it spent six weeks on Billboard 200, reached the peak of spot 70. It's not exactly something that you would pop on maybe all the time. It's slightly monotonic, do I dare to say? But it works for this movie perfectly and sometimes it's really fun. Especially the ending tanker chase music. Truck chase music and tanker chase music. Those are probably my favorites apart from the title theme. And the T-1000. The emerging danger that you get from the music right away. The... Legendary. Fiedel said that the recurring metallic sound in the main title was produced by hitting a cast iron frying pan with a hammer. About the alternative versions, there's the theatrical cut, preferred by James Cameron, then there's the extended cut, then there is the, what you probably have, what did you say it was, ultimate cut or whatever. A director's cut. Uh, Yeah, okay, it's a director's cut. Then there is the T2 3D battle across time, well, a thing of its own, really. 
from 1996 when they reunited these three main actors. This was made for a theme park. Uh, maybe you're aware of this. Its runtime is 12 minutes. It's a bunch of videos shot for an attraction park for Universal Studios. It was first rolling in two or three locations. Currently it's rolling only in Japan. The other ones were discontinued in the LA studios and some other place as well. So it used to be in the US and uh, Hamilton, Schwarzenegger, Furlong and Patrick were gathered back five years later after T2. The whole show, the attraction, consists of pre-show, main show, and that's it. So pre-show, people are gathered in a space where they're supposed to be inside Cyberdyne, where they watch a 3D video about the technological contributions of Cyberdyne. Fun fact, they needed to re-edit that technological contributions video because they had, at the point when they changed that, was it 2010 or something, the advancements shown in that video were already created in real life at that point, so there was nothing especially fancy about it. And then there's the main show. People are invited to the next room where they are on a roller coaster seats, you know, and then they can control the seats. They shake from left to right and up and down, I guess. And some water is falling on your on you. And they watch a video where John and Sarah and the T-800 advance through a war-ridden landscape to the headquarters of Cyberdyne. And Terminator fights the T-Million, who is basically a bigger version of T-1000 with tentacles and stuff. And then it ends when they get to Cyberdyne and destroy the T-Million. And just for these 12 minutes of shooting, they had to pay 60 million for the whole production. <laughs> well, if you're gonna have robot tentacles, might as well go all out with it and no, spend your money on that. Yeah, according to Cameron, this was a really great idea. He didn't really like the whole theme park attraction idea at first, but then he looked at the idea and thought that it was a really good one. But uh, Team Million and Tentacles... <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this was a, around that time period when James Cameron first time heard about anime. And then someone just mentioned that, you know, if we make the theme park, there's going to be tentacles. Oh, yeah. Fucking soul! Jamesu Cameron, has this movie aged badly? Only on effects side. And even they are not as atrocious as some examples from the era or even later movies. So altogether, it's actually aged surprisingly well. It's graceful old animation. It's done very, very well. No special complaints. Of course, you can see the differences between practical and the 3D, especially on Blu-ray and high-definition televisions, but no problem there. Definitely the animation is more blurry nowadays. Henrik, I think we have learned the value of human life. Even though we are crazy robots. We have finished T2. Anything special to add at this point? So, Gary, would you recommend Terminator 2 Judgment Day to our listeners? Oh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Yeah, it's, it's not a question that is easy to answer. I would not recommend Terminator 2, period. I'm not going to laugh at your pathetic attempt <laughs> of a joke here. <laughs> Take your trolling to 4 chat. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to recommend it for let's say, the next five years for myself. But otherwise, I will re recommend it. That's my smartest joke for this evening. I've seen it too many times. Way too many. And I guess that 
everyone else also has already seen the film. So also in that sense, no actual need to recommend Terminator 2. But yeah, you know, to keep it at odds with our previous episodes, a flying recommendation from here as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a magnificent movie. One of the best action movies ever made. And definitely, I would say, the best example on how to make a movie where two robots punch each other in the face. After T2X. <laughs> I, 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 I can give, give T2X <laughs> that much that it has best robot-on-robot fighting using the smallest piece of 2x4. With no storyboard. Okay. But this movie, however, as a matter of fact, got the Oscars. For best makeup, best sound, best sound editing, best visual effects. If I got that right. Yeah. Those technical Oscars that nobody actually ever accounts to anything. Yeah, I do. But the general audiences do not. And now they're making a lot of changes to the next Oscars. There's going to be some stupid categories, I heard. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's a tough job trying to keep your lousy award ceremony still relevant to this day. To be honest, I really always like to, whenever I did watch the Oscars, I haven't watched it in years properly, but whenever I did, I saw it as something enjoyable that I can uh, follow this whole ceremony for hours and just look what is happening live when they are there and their feelings and the atmosphere and... Now they're trying to shorten it up immensely and make it more TV-friendly again, get more people watching it with stupid categories like, what was it? It wasn't exactly, was it like most successful movie? The, the, basically the movie that made the most amount of money, the most, the most in consciousness culturally at that moment type of Oscar, which doesn't mean anything. So the next Oscar is going to go hands down to the next Something like, I don't know, Tron 4, or however many there are. So yeah, good going. Artistic integrity means nothing anymore. Just the amount of bucks you make at the box office. Well, you know, in the Oscar Galas defense, artistic integrity has actually not meant anything to the awards for quite some time now. Yeah. Been Pretty much about the backroom politics and... Yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. It's also true that Arnold got 15 million for this film, and I believe like 12 point something of his paycheck went directly to a personal plane that he wanted to have. Yeah, yeah it was an unheard of sum at the time. Karolko just plainly gave him apparently the 15 million. Let's compare that with Linda Hamilton. Linda Hamilton got 1 million. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. You, you you can kind of clearly see who is Arnold Schwarzenegger and who is the woman. Yeah, not going to continue with that. <laughs> oh my god. Too much coffee today. What's our next episode? I believe it's Ap- Apocalypse Now. I'm, I'm looking at our recording calendar and it would appear to say that the close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Since, uh, Apocalypse Now is an absolute fucking beast. First to watch and then to talk about. Oh, well, did you make the change because I was 
certain it was a pack 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 lips a pack 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 lips now i'm gonna make the changes right after we finish recording just you wait <laughs> okay so one of those next time it, it, it's gonna be a movie i can promise our listeners that much mm, that much is clear you can find us on the deepest levels of abyss facebook you can find us on the alternative hell twitter you can find us on the youtube you can also look our meaningless pictures at instagram i'm about to go through the swinging doors of this laboratory shall we exit the perimeters uh, i'm already at the parking lot oh wait for me goddammit. <laughs> see you next week yeah until then Voi mennä vielä aivan päin persettä. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't, I didn't even, I didn't, I, what does she, 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 psychological, psychological stuff.